Good morning, First Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Okay. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. Why don't you guys stand up? Let's get ready for some worship. Before we do, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. Lord, this day that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and worship you. Uh, We just ask that um, we would uh, be able to just set this time aside, Lord, to just focus on you, Lord, and everything else that's going on in our lives right now, Lord. We can just put that to the side, Lord, because the reason that we are here today, the reason that we come to you, Lord, is to worship you, Lord, because you deserve it, Lord. We love you, and we thank you for everything that you've given to us, Lord, and today we just, we give it back to you in the form of our praise and our worship, God. And so we just ask that during this time, Lord, you would just be glorified. Amen. The skies are wide, crashing down to bring the world to life. Hope came dancing on an empty grave. Death has lost its rule to the King of Grace. Be the crown in the light and sound.
the praise go up as the walls come down. All creation, everything with breath, repeat the sound. All his children, clean as pure, arts, good grace, good God. His name is Jesus. going to take a short break and reset some things on the stage and we'll be right back. Welcome back to those who are watching online and uh, for everyone here. Thanks for being here on this uh, 4th of July weekend. Uh, we know there's a lot of things going on and so we appreciate you being here with us. Uh, one little bit of, of, of kind of about our congregation uh, yesterday. Uh, Bobby Joyner, uh, one of our members who's been battling cancer for a long time, um, went to be with the Lord. So got to see him Friday and pray with him and just have some time together. And it was very precious. And uh, so anyways, be praying for the family um, and everybody involved in that. I want to talk about, we're going to continue to talk about Hosea and the book of Hosea. And just a reminder, Hosea is about two marriages. About, it's about the marriage of, of, of uh, Hosea and Gomer, but that marriage points to a greater marriage. It, it's about the marriage between God and his people. And that's the focus of the book. Uh, Hosea and Gomer are just an illustration of, the book, of, of, of God's love and God's marriage. But the focus of the book is God, God in Israel. And so what does God do? He tells Hosea, I want you to go pursue her. Go pursue her. She's betrayed you, but you go pursue her. And then God says, because I'm pursuing Israel. And then in the rest of this book, what we're going to see is the difficulties and, and, and complexities of God's pursuit of his people and how sometimes it becomes, it can become very difficult and uh, we see a side of God that oftentimes we do not talk about as much in this day and age. We see God gets angry. He's betrayed. It breaks his heart. 
and he reacts to it. And so we, this shows us the heart of God. This talks about, and, and we're going to talk about this idea, uh, these next two chapters we're going to look at today. And I want to tell you, we're going to look at two chapters. It's just like a wall of text. Buckle your seatbelts, hang in there. We're going to just be going and talking and going and talking, which is what I do anyway. So it won't be anything that different. But it, what is justice? And is true justice available? And when we as people are confronted with justice, how do we, how do we react? Um, I, I, have, I, I have some experience with courtrooms, and uh, this is like a courtroom scene. Uh, I remember years ago when I was a teenager, I, I used to race motorcycles, and so I had taken one of my racing motorcycles, and I put a little headlight on the front, and I put a little taillight on the back, and I got a mirror off of a bicycle and clamped it to the handlebar, and off that same bicycle, there was a horn, one of those <laughs> horns that you squeeze, and I put that on the motorcycle because all motorcycles have to have a horn to be street legal. And then this bike was very loud because it was a racing bike, so I found a company that built, they call them silencers, they just help mediate the sound and you just bolt it on to the end of the tailpipe of your race bike but they're kind of a snarky company so all their silencers were actually made out of beer cans they they take a beer can and then they put all the, the asbestos and everything that goes in in it and um so and it just kind of illustrated the kind of person i was and so one day i i was riding and and i i may or may not have been doing a wheelie um but i figure if people with unicycles don't get tickets I don't understand the problem. So uh, this policeman pulled me over, and, and we had a long discussion. And uh, basically, the discussion was about my, my writing. And, and uh, he, he said, look, I, obviously, you're a good writer, but you, just, you can't do that. And, I, and he ultimately just said, your taillight doesn't work. I had rigged up so that if I hit the brake, the taillight would light up, and it wasn't working. And he gave me a ticket for the taillight not working. So then he's looking at me, my bike, and he sees a Budweiser can stuck to the end of my t exhaust pipe, and he goes, is this a joke? Are you making fun? What, what's the deal? So then I'm desperately trying to tell him, I know I'm not old enough to drink, but this is, you know, it does So I went to court, um, and this is quite a while ago, and so uh, there were letters coming addressed to my parents, and I would get them so that they didn't know about my court appearance. And I went to the court appearance, and the first thing they said is, where are your parents? And I said, Unfor unfortunate circumstances, they, they, just, they just can't be here. And uh, the judge seemed to accept that. And um, so then the, the officer just listed off. Look, da, 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 da. So finally, uh, Your Honor, I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be too rough on this kid. I gave him a ticket for, for his stoplight, his brake light not working. And, and what was interesting was I'm, I, I can't remember, I'm, I'm, youth, I'm a teenager, you know, and, and I was involved in some things where I, I was talked about justice. We need to have justice in our country. We need to da, 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 da. But you know, when I found myself in a courtroom, I was like, mercy is what we need nowadays. We need a little bit of mercy in this place. This is such a terrible place. You know, it's all, everybody's justice, justice, justice. I need mercy. And, and uh, I, I suddenly realized I wasn't interested in justice or fairness anymore. I wanted a break. I, I wanted mercy. And so here we are. We're in a situation where we're confronted with God saying there has to be justice. There has to be justice in this world. When things are done wrong... Ultimately, God says, I'm a God of justice. Now, we were just singing about the love of God because the Scripture tells us God is love. I mean, that's the core of his being in 1 John. But part of love also is anger. When someone you love dearly 
is destroying themselves. It makes you angry. Not because you hate that person, but it's because that, that thing they're doing to themselves breaks your heart and your natural reaction is anger. It's natural for us. Why is it natural for us? Because we're created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. So when we see someone we love hurting themselves, destroying their life, compromising their future, it makes us angry. And God says, I'm angry. I'm angry. So we're going to talk about that. So the first thing I want you to see is we talk about loving discipline. We're, we're going to look at the charge that is brought. Okay, because we're in a courtroom scene now. The charge that is brought, and the first part of the charge that is brought is to the people. And so here, you see it up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. So he starts off, he says, I have a charge. And the first part of this charge is there's a charge against the people. All right? So that, like a prosecution, he's saying this. He's telling them, you, and he says to them, it's, it's, it's very interesting because to them this would ring so quickly and so clearly in their mind. He says, to the inhabitants of the land. So what does that do? That focuses where they live, the land they live in. And that's God's way of saying, do you remember how you got this land? Do you remember how you were brought to this place? You are inhabitants. Of, you, are, you have received blessings that you do not deserve. You have received fortune that is not in any way earned. You are inhabitants of the land because I gave it to you. He's reminding them of that. And what does that remind them of? You go all the way back to when the children of Israel were coming, coming out of Egypt, when, when they're in the book of Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even into Joshua. What happens? God tells them, this is how I want you to be. When you get to that land, I have this land I've promised to you. Now, here's how you have to live in that land. And, and there are laws that God sets forth. He tells them, I want you, how you treat your neighbor is very important. He, he talks to landowners, people who have large fields, and he says, when you glean from your field, don't totally glean it. When you glean, leave the corners unpicked. Leave some of the figs on the tree. Leave some of the olives. You know, leave some so that people who are less fortunate than you can come and they can glean what you've left over and they can have food to eat and they can have oil to sell and they can buy things and they can live. They can have a life. So he says, that's how you treat your neighbor. He says, how you treat the immigrant. He talks about how you treat immigrants who come to your country. He talks about how you treat the poor. He talks about how every 50 years there's a release of debt. All debts are wiped away so that no one is saddled with generational debt. No one is saddled with an unpayable debt that, that holds them down for years and years. He says, every so often there's just a release of debt. Now plan on that and do that. And he says, there's no faithfulness in the land. There's no acknowledgement of God. That word acknowledgement is really just the root word. It's just knowledge. And, and knowledge of God to them was this idea of knowing something and then living it out. We've talked about this so many times. I know it's, you've heard it here a lot. But it's the idea of knowing it and living it. Because if, if you say you know it but you don't live it, you don't really know it. 
It really hasn't impacted you. You don't really know it. If you say you know it and you just live it. All right, he says, he says I, I want you to know there's no knowledge. There's no acknowledgement. There's a failure here. You're, you're, not, you're not obeying my, my commandments. And the point is there's not even a desire to do that. There's not even a desire. And then we see the, then we see the ripples. How does, how does this affect how does this work out into every aspect of life? In verse 3 it says, Because of this the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. What is he saying here? He's telling them there are consequences. This isn't just about you. There are consequences to what you do. And those consequences spread out, and they affect the people around you. They affect the land around you. They affect the whole earth. They, inf- they affect everyone. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, where he says creation groans under, under what sin has done. It groans under it's the effect of sin in the world we live in. We need to be growing in the knowledge of God, and it should affect how we live. This is the first thing he's, he's charging. Here's the second thing, the charge that is brought. For A, to the people, B, to the priests. Now he's going to start talking to the priests and telling them the charges that he brings. But let no one bring a charge, but let no one accuse one another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. He's he's using this illustrative language concerning the temple. And he says, but my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of God, I also will ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. So now he's bringing charges to the spiritual leaders. And this is where I get uncomfortable. Because I stand up here and I teach. And God says, I hold people accountable for that. And in verse 6, he's telling them people are dying because the priests are not rightly dividing the word. They're not dividing the truth, rightly dividing the truth. And so that there are people who are paying an incredible um, price for that. He says, they feed on the, the, the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people like priests. I will punish the both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds, for they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. All right, so now he's saying something. He's telling them, he says, first of all, they they feed on, on the sins of the people. They relish it. What happens? People who are told that if you've sinned, you need to bring this offering, and they would bring those offerings, and the priests would enrich themselves on those offerings. They would get rich off the sin offerings. And in verse 9, he's telling them, so you're both guilty. And then in verse 10, he tells them, you will never have enough. You will never be satisfied. Now, as we look at this, it's easy to look back and think, wow, what those people, but let's think about that. You will never be satisfied. When we find ourselves chasing things that the world tells us we need, we will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. When we see these things, oh, this is, this is, you know, all those different things. And I mean, that's, we all know this. That's what our whole advertising industry is built upon, the fact of keeping you not satisfied so that there's always something more, so that there's always something more. And so when I think about this passage, I think 
the responsibility of the people involved. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul talks about this. He says, I'm asking God to fill you with all the knowledge of, the, of, of his will so that you will live lives that bear fruit. And so these priests were not teaching people the knowledge of God. Why did they not teach the people the knowledge of God? It's because the people didn't want to hear it. People weren't interested in that. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this. The true prophets of God, they're always confronted. You always give us bad news. The true prophets of God, people say, I don't want to hear what that guy has to say. It's always negative. It's always about repentance and sin, right? I'm sick of that stuff. Give me some good news. You're always bad news. You always want people to repent. False prophets made everybody good, feel good about themselves. They would always say, you guys are great. Man, everything's going to be okay. Trust God. Everything's going to be great. Hashtag blessed, you know, the same old thing. And, and so all that, th th that's what's going on. They knew the people didn't want to hear it, so they figured, I, I want to give them what they want. The worst thing for a spiritual leader, for any leader, I guess, really, is to surround yourself with people who will never cross you or stand up to you or confront you. That's the worst thing you can do. Because if you have people who won't cross you or confront you or stand up to you, what will happen no one will be able to say, hey, not such a good idea. Hey, we not, don't need to do that. We need to have that. Because you know what? It's human nature to want to be liked. And that's how the priests were. They weren't any different from us. That's how I can be. Uh, I want to be liked. You know? After all, who goes around saying, boy, if I could only find someone who would tell me what a jerk I am. None of us do that, Right? We want people to tell us that we're good. Second Timothy, Paul says there's going to become a time where people can't endure sound teaching. They just want to hear what feels good. Just make me feel good, pastor. Just make me feel good. And this is what's going on back then. Isn't it amazing? We're looking at 2,500, 2,700 years ago, and people are the same. And spiritual leaders are the same. We're dealing with the same issues. And pastors take face a temptation to sugarcoat things and sometimes for pastors they have to be willing to say I'm going to be a prophet and I'm going to say no this is wrong I'm willing to get in people's face and that I don't like that I don't like that at all but one of the things like you know I don't want to say this like oh we're doing so good here thank you you're welcome um, but one of the things is for us we teach whole books we teach whole books of the Bible we don't always teach whole books of the Bible, but that's something that I want to do most of the time. Why? I like to teach whole books, and this is why. Because that's how it's written. This is how Hosea was written to the people of God. And it's just good exegesis to come at it as a whole book. All right? Number two, this is what's good for me. I have to face the whole book. I, have to, I can't skip and pick and choose. Let me tell you, I could make three, three messages out of Hosea that would just make everybody feel so good. Just pick the right verses. And everybody would feel so good about themselves and about each other and God and grace. Nah, nah, nah. But the problem is we'd miss the whole truth of the book of Hosea. We'd miss it. And so I just want to say I'm not against topical sermons because I do them. But not all the time. We can't do them all the time. Because with topical sermons it can become too easy and too tempting just to teach people the nice stuff. The easy stuff, the stuff that we all want to hear. 
And here's why it's easy. Because when you teach just the nice stuff and the easy stuff and the stuff everyone wants to hear, it makes you feel like they're going to want to keep coming. And they're, and they're going to love me. And they're going to give. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to have this church full of people that think I'm wonderful. Right? That's what can happen. I don't want that to happen. I mean, I want you to like me. But sometimes we've got to deal with the hard stuff. And Hosea... This book is wicked hard to teach. Let me tell you, it's a tough book. Not because there's any, it's just because it explores themes that are hard for us. Because they make us think. And it's not a book that's always fun to hear. And teaching hard books protects me from my natural desire to be nice and be liked. Okay, that's on me. Now for you, for you. This requires you to have a stance of humility. For everybody here, for everybody who's listening at home, you have to have a stance of humility in this. You may not like some of the things I say, but you have to be willing to say, you know what? Maybe God is trying to speak to me. Maybe I need to change. Maybe there's something in me. I will listen. I might not agree, but I will listen. That's that stance of humility that has to happen, and it has to happen both ways. So now we think about this. We start to apply this text to our lives and the responsibility that we have to this text and how it challenges us. And so he says the charge that is brought to the people, to the priests, and the third one is the charge that's brought concerning worship. He says, my people consulted a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughter-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes, a people without understanding, will come to a ruin. So what, what is God telling them here? Because now he's charging them concerning their worship. He's saying, look, you look for wisdom. You look for knowledge in the wrong places. You, you're not looking to God. You're using idols, images, things that you made with your own hands. And you're worshiping them. And God is saying, you're unfaithful. You've committed adultery. This is a hard truth for us. When I sin, I'm committing adultery towards God. When I sin, I am breaking his heart. Breaking his heart. That's a hard thing. And I believe in grace, and I believe in mercy, and I believe in the love of God, but it doesn't change the fact that when I sin, I am personally wounding him and adding one more sin that had to be paid for at the cross. We have to understand that. And God here is trying to show us his heart. He's saying, this is killing me. It's killing me. In verse 13, he tells them, you like to go up and, and sacrifice under the shade, right? He says, I'm on the mountain tops, uh, under the oaks, where the shade is pleasant. What is he telling you? He's saying, you, you're, you've decided that worship needs to be very pleasant. Worship needs to be, be very pleasant. We, we used to have these black chairs that we sat in at this church, actually, before we moved into this building. And they were skinnier and less padding, and, and they had this fake uh, leather 
uh, coverings so that when people scooted on them, they made embarrassing noises and everybody would giggle and laugh at them. And, and, and they weren't comfortable. So we, we got these chairs, and I'd, I had more, more than a few people come up and say, this is not a good idea because you're making people comfortable. They're going to all fall asleep, Bob. They're going to all fall. So <laughs> this is, I can check now. When we're, we're low like this, I can see everybody here. Wake up. Um, they went for comfort. That was what was most important. Now, I'm not against being comfortable. But when comfort becomes important, because what did they do? They changed where they worship because it wasn't comfortable. It was, it, it was inconvenient. All the way to Jerusalem? <sighs> I just want to go halfway. I just want to go a quarter of the way. Why can't I just go out back? I can worship there just as well as anywhere else. I mean, that's so many times God calls us. I mean, right now we're in the middle, middle of this whole COVID-19 thing, and I understand that. But God calls us ultimately to be people who worship together. And we're using live streaming because it's a great tool. But ultimately, if you're within driving distance of the church, at some point you've got to come back because corporate worship, God says that's where it's at. That's where it's at. You can listen to us at home, but it's not the same. And, and that's just the plug. Okay, I'll, just, I'll stop there. I don't want to make you too uncomfortable. But they were looking. Oh, I can't believe I just said that in the, text of the context of this passage. They just wanted comfort. So they followed a religion of their own making because that religion made them feel comfortable. It, conf- it comforted them, and it didn't confront them. When I was a kid, there used to be this toy called a magic eight ball. Anybody remember those things, right? And, and you would shake it up and turn it over, and suddenly a, a little thing floating inside would come up with supposedly an answer. You ask it a question, shake it a little bit, turn it over, and boop, an answer would pop up, right? So I can remember um, being in like the fifth grade. I'm talking about myself a lot today. Uh, um, there was this girl I liked. Her name was Sarah in the fifth grade. And so some people were fooling around with a magic eight ball. And I said, oh, let me see. Let me see. This is so crazy. This is so crazy. You know how sometimes you think, I know this isn't true, but I kind of hope my, maybe it is true. So I said, eight ball, should Sarah and I be boyfriend and girlfriend? And I turned it over and it said, don't count on it. I was like, that thing crazy. Come on, come on. Eight ball, should Sarah and I be boyfriend and girlfriend? I turned it over and it said, my sources say no. I'm getting upset, you know, should I? And then it said, ask again later. I was like, oh, ho, ho, there's a chance. Small one, but it's a chance. And so I shook it again a little later. Eight ball, should Sarah and I be boyfriend, girlfriend? And it said, yes. And I was like, yeah. So then, so then I go, in, you know, we're in class. It's like a break time. And I go over and say, Sarah, it's the funniest thing, you know. <laughs> Some of us are playing around with a magic eight ball. And I said, should you and I be boyfriend, girlfriend? And it said, yes. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And she said, yeah, that's funny. Those things are bull. I don't believe them at all. And I said, oh, me neither. That's just kind of, it was just crazy, that's all. <laughs> Sorry, crying. Um, uh, I, I had a tough life. You can tell, right? I had a hard life. But we do that in real life. We do that in real life more than we care to admit. We try to justify what we do. And if we feel like there's a portion of Scripture that absolutely says something against that, we kind of go, what about over here? What about? And we look for something to reinforce what we already want. And that becomes dangerous. That becomes dangerous. And unfortunately, studies show that's how most people watch the news, too, is they look for what they agree with, and that's where they stay, instead of letting counter-arguments shake them a little bit. And we do that with Scripture, because we're based, our 
culture is based on comfort. We should all be comfortable. And if you're uncomfortable, it's somebody's fault and you should sue them. That's our culture. And so we start treating the word of God like a magic eight ball. I don't like what this passage says, so I'll find a way to explain it away so I don't have to believe this. We try to get the word of God to agree with what we want. And what are we doing there? What we're doing is exactly what they were doing 2,700 years ago. We're making our own religion. We're in charge now, not God. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And for many of us, here's what can happen is we'll look at the hot-button issues around us today, the ones that we don't struggle with, and we'll say, yes, Bob, preach it. Yeah, give it to them, Bob. Give it to those people, whoever it is that we don't agree with. But we tend to ignore the biblical commands that we actually struggle with, how we use our money, how we treat people that we're not like, how we treat people that we don't like, what is our responsibility to our neighbors, how we spend our time, and I could just go on and on and on. See, we tend to not deal with those issues as much because those are hard. But if Bob tells us something, I agree with that, yeah, teach it, right? We can't do that. In Israel, they were keeping the easy commandments because they, they weren't the ones they didn't like. But the ones that impacted them and they thought would impact them negatively, they ignored those commandments. So that sometimes people came into some money and then they lent out money and they said, well, like in five years is, is, is the Jubilee year. All debts are wiped away. No, I'm not doing that. But I'll get a lamb and I'll take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb at the temple. I'll do that because that doesn't impact me as much as calling that loan or getting, writing that loan off the books will. And so what they did is they picked and choose. They did the easy ones. And we can do that. We can do that. And then God says in 13 and 14, he says people who are in positions of power will be held responsible. He talks about, you know, when I'm not going to hold your, I'm not going to hold your daughters. I'm not going to hold your wives responsible for, for, for adultery. I'm not going to hold them responsible because you made a religion out of it. You go to the temple prostitutes and it's a very patriarchal society where the men could get away with a lot, but the women couldn't. So if a man cheated on his wife, it was no big deal. But if a woman cheated on her husband, it was huge. It became a, the whole village got involved in disciplining her, right? And God says, you know what? I'm not going to discipline her because it's your fault. You're doing this. People, and, and, and let's just pull it out of the man-woman thing because that can create so much, uh, so much problems with people. But people in positions of power are held more responsible for how they behave because they impact more people. And that's a scary thing when you're a pastor. Or it should be a scary thing when you're a pastor. The men were doing things. God says, I hold you accountable. In verse 15, he says, though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go to Beth-Avon. And do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. But then, how then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow. What is God saying? He's saying, you're stubborn. I want to take you like lambs. I want, to, I want to lead you to a good place. And you're so stubborn, you keep saying, no, I want to go to my place because I think my place is better than your good place. And so as we start thinking about this, 
in our own lives, we start thinking, are we willing to grow? Do you want to grow? Or are we stubborn and unwilling to change? We're set, and this is what I believe, and nothing's going to change it, and I'm not, I'm not going to let anybody else speak something different. Are we willing to learn the hard things, or we just tend to stick with the things we like? Are we stubborn? Are we even trying? Yeah, we fail. That's obvious. We all know that. But the question is, is are we trying? Or are we just too stubborn? And this is what God's calling them. This is what this courtroom scene is about. Because for us, it needs to start with a willingness to yield to God, to trust the Holy Spirit, to lead us to the truth. Not rejecting the knowledge we have and what we know to do. Because the Spirit's job is he, he convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, and he leads to truth. That's why we have to be at times just saying, okay, God, Holy Spirit, lead me. Help me. I don't want to become stubborn. I don't want to be one of those that God says, what can I do with you? You're not even trying. So the charge that is brought to the people, to the priests, and then concerning worship. He's gone over these charges. And now, this is the fun part, right? Judgment. The judge is going to issue judgment. And we get into chapter 5 on this. But I want you to remember, and this is from the very beginning of the book, the goal here is repentance. The goal here is not punishment, not discipline. God is going to discipline his people because he wants them to repent. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want to hurt them. He wants them to repent. But he's realizing they're so stubborn. These, these steps that he's taking have to get worse and worse. So now we're going to see justice, true justice. The guilty will be punished. The innocent will be let go free. So who's guilty in the land of Israel? And, and the point is, everyone is guilty. There are no innocents. In verse 1, he says, hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. Okay, so the priests, the spiritual leaders, the people, Israelites, the royal house, the political leaders. I'm talking to all of you, he says. I'm talking to all of you. He says, pay attention, listen, the judgment is against you. You've been declared guilty. You've been a snare at Mitzpah, a, a net spread out at Tabor. So, so everyone, he's saying, everyone is guilty. He says, the rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them, all of the people of God. It's the same as today. We're all guilty. We all deserve punishment, but for the grace and the mercy of God, we all deserve punishment. None of us are innocent. In verse 4, he says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. There's that word acknowledge that's based on knowledge. All right? And he's saying, and I love this. The Bible is incredibly honest. God is saying they, they're trapped in their sinful patterns. This addiction is so strong. You know, oftentimes people say, I can stop doing this anytime I want. And the truth is, they can't. Sinful habits, sinful habits can dominate us. And so they've chased after other gods. They've, they've made these idols. They've made them the center of their life. They're, they're, they're willfully sinning. That is, they're sinning without any remorse. They're thinking, I'll get this straight later. We'll get this straight later. But for now, I do what I want when I want. I, this is what I want. I'm doing it. And so they've, they've totally uh, misunderstood the gravity of the whole situation. 
of what is going on around them. They're, they're misusing people, especially the poor. They're cheating people. They're using the law and twisting it to get what they want at other people's expense. And then they're chasing idols, things that they could make with their own hands. Now they're worshiping. And so in verse 5, he says Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, um, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. Now just a reminder, there's a northern kingdom. It's called Israel. The main tribe in the northern kingdom is Ephraim. So if he says Israel or Ephraim, he's talking about basically the same people. The southern kingdom is mainly Judah. All right, so when he talks about Judah, he's talking about two different kingdoms, but both he's saying ultimately have, have this degree of guilt that's involved in, in their lives. And so he says Israel's arrogance testifies against them. That reminds me. I mean, that just, for me, that, that uh, going all the way back to Genesis, Cain and Abel, and God says, your brother's blood on the ground is crying out to me. It's crying out to me. It's testifying against you. It's so interesting. God says, we're in a courtroom scene, right? And he says, I got a witness here. And who's the witness? It's your arrogance. And the arrogance is put on display. And it's like, ah, oh, they're guilty. So it testifies against them. They go through the motions of sacrifice and spirituality. It's amazing. It's like they think God doesn't know, right? Isn't it funny how sometimes we do things and it's like we think God doesn't know? We think he's not really paying attention, or I've gotten away with it for a while, so it must not be, and God goes, no, no, I know, I know. Don't mistake my mercy for weakness. Don't mistake my grace for, I, I know. It's like a, like a man cheating on his wife and then acting like nothing's wrong. Years ago, I was talking to a couple, and that's what was happening acting like nothing was wrong. And she knew something was wrong. She knew it. She knew it. And the children of Israel are committing adultery against God and they're acting like he doesn't even know. The arrogance of that. Thinking that if, if, if they did God a few favors, they brought a sheep in and they did this, he'd be placated. That he'd be okay with it. Like they throw him a bone. Their hearts are far from him and his heart is far from them because of the distance that sin has created in their lives. You know, when my wife and I were younger and our kids were all little and we, we had five kids and sometimes, sometimes our household was just so hectic and, 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 uh, and chaotic at times, just, just seven people in a small house, you know, just five kids. It was busy. And, and what happened after, after a bit, we, we sensed that we had lost touch with each other. There, there, there was a separate, we, we got so busy with the kids that we neglected us and our relationship. And we had to do the hard work of loving each other, of rekindling our love. I, I think of Reve oh, man. Revelation 2, you know, he says, he says to them, he says to this church, he says, you guys are awesome. This is what you do. You do this, you do this, you do this. You do this, you do this. That's really good, but I got one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. He's like, you're doing plenty of good things, but man, what about me? And can you imagine? They're probably saying, oh, God, we're doing it for you. And God's like, no, no, I want you. I want your love. 
I want to love you and I want you to love me. I want to have a relationship with you. You're too busy doing good things. But I want you. That's an important thing for us to remember. Because what happened to the Ephesians? They lost perspective. And here, the children of Israel, they thought, oh, we can get away with this. We throw God, we throw God a bone, he'll be fine. And God says, man, I'm going to let you go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you reap the whirlwind here. Why? Why? Because he's so mad that he wants to see their pain? No. It's because God wants them to see the emptiness of life without him and come back. The goal is repentance here. The goal is repentance. We've seen that over and over and over in this book already, and it's still there. And so now we see the judgment of God. <clears throat> and it's so interesting because the judgment of God starts off with a word of grace. He says, sound the trumpet uh, to Gil Gilbeah. He says, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth Avon. Lead on Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Now, what does he start with? He says, sound the trumpet. What's that? That's a warning. He says, I'm giving you a heads up on this deal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Return to me. You got one last chance because it's coming. It's coming. And so he says, I'm going to give you a warning. The first thing he starts off with. He says, Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I read that and I was like, they're like people who move boundary stones? I, I, I just imagine people going around going, <laughs> I changed your fence line or something like that. You know, I moved your fence. Okay, what is this? Those boundary stones determined boundaries of land, obvious, yep. But land is inheritance. Those things are incredibly important because people's financial lives depend on the land they own. And what was happening is the leaders of Israel were manipulating boundaries so that suddenly people had less land and somebody else with power and money and a lawyer had more land. And so they were robbing people. This is actual financial robbery. It's like coming into their house and putting a gun to, they don't have guns, putting a knife to them, you know, and saying, give me all your money. They're, but they're doing it legally, right? We know how this works, right? They're doing it legally because they have the money and they have the lawyers and they can affect the court. And so what's happening? The leaders are enriching themselves at mostly the poor people's expense because for the poor people, that's all they got is that plot of land. That's all they got. And God says, you thought you were doing that secretly. You thought you were doing it legally. I saw. I saw. And I'm holding you accountable. I'm holding you accountable. And so they, they did the, the, the uh, stones that determined inheritance. They were, being, they were cheating people. And God says, when you cheat them, you're cheating me. You're cheating me. In verse 12, let's see. It says, oh, well, here we go. Judah's leaders are like those who move the boundary stones. I'll pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in, the, in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like a rot to the people of, of Judah. What is he saying? There is an outside army coming, and also it's a rot from the inside. It's killing you from the inside out. And he's telling them, but you're getting it from both. In verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah, his, 
his sores. Then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king to help, but he is not able to cure you nor able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. So historically, we know what happened. We, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the Bible is incredibly accurate about how the, the sequence of events that took place here. Uh, um, e, uh, Ephraim, Israel, uh, was allied with a couple other countries against Assyria. Assyria started to invade, and Ephraim said, Oh my goodness, they have a lot of people. It's a big army. And so they sent peace treaties and treaties. They sent people to, to go to the king of Assyria and say, look, 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 we were wrong. We should not have opposed you. We will pay you money every year. We will be your vassals. Just don't destroy us. And the king of Assyria said, too late, pal. You guys have been a thorn in my side for 30 years, and the bills come due. And it came due horribly. God gave them the trumpet, the warning. You know, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a history nut. I love this kind of stuff. Not the killing stuff, but I mean, I, I, history. I love history. And what would happen is when, in those days especially, when one country would invade another, people had to make a decision. The decision is, do I run to the hills or do I run to the city? Because the city has walls and the city has a reservoir of stores and water, hopefully, so it's a safe place to go in a war. Unless they defeat, they break the walls, then we're all dead. So do I run to the hills with what meager things I have, but I'm, that's relative safety? Or do I run to the city? Those are my choices. And, and God's telling them, you know, you, you guys ran to the city, you, you, and, and you sent peace people to, to the king of Assyria. You went to the wrong person. Isn't that amazing? It's like God is telling them, you're seeking your cures from the wrong source. I'm here. I could help you. But they would not. They wouldn't heed the warning. And so God says, it's going to be, this is going to be Ephraim, Judah. You're going to get torn to pieces. You don't know what you're dealing with here. Now, here's what happens a lot of times. If I teach something like this, what happens is, if you're more of an introspective person, you'll start getting eaten alive with guilt. You'll start going, I've had some bad things happen in my life lately. God's disciplining me. Why won't I repent? What is it? I'm not sure what it is, but I'll, you know, we, and we can get into just this. And I, and I want to just say something real quick, because I get people say, I, I'm having a tough time in my life right now, Bob. How do I know if it's discipline from God? And here's Here's the key. It's just some of the keys. There's more than just this. But one of them is, always in Scripture, God blows the trumpet. He gives a warning. He always tells people, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You keep doing this, it's gonna, you're going to reap the world. Don't go this way. Not because he wants to take good things away, but he says, I know what's best for you. This is not best for you. This is worse for you. You're creating damage that you don't even see yet. Right? He warns. The Spirit warns. So, if you're feeling you're in a, in a tough time and, and you're thinking maybe there's something, have you been warned? Have you been warned? Because it may just be this is part of living in a sinful world. And God can use things and difficulties in our lives in a sinful world, but it doesn't mean he's inflicting it on you to get you to learn something. It doesn't mean that, right? 
So have you been warned? Do you have people in your life who will tell you the truth? Not just what you want to hear, but the truth. And are you willing to listen to them? Okay? This is, this is not just like sins they've fallen into. These are deliberate things that they have made thoughtful decisions to do, knowing what they're doing. When God disciplines, it's because you've done that. And they feel oh, there's no sense of guilt in the perpetrators. If you feel guilt for your sins, then God is working. The Spirit is working in your life. Allow the Spirit to work in your life and to point those things out and to repent and move on because God's goal is repentance. His goal is not to inflict pain on people. That's not his goal. Last verse of chapter 5. This happens almost like every chapter, right? Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. God says, I'm available. I'm available to my people. When it says they have borne their guilt, that, that means the idea of acknowledging it and repenting. And, and what is repentance? It is acknowledging the sin and turning and going in the other direction. And, and he described, this is a good definition of repentance right here. They have borne their guilt and they seek my face. They go, this is sin. This is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. God, forgive me. I seek you, O Lord. Your face I seek. And so I need to recognize my guilt and my need and then turn to God. Turn to God rather than whatever it was I was trusting in. Because sin, one way to look at sin is sin is a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. What am I trusting to bring me happiness? What am I trusting? What idol am I trusting to find purpose? What idol am I trusting or what thing am I trusting to make me comfortable? What thing, what idol makes me feel safe? What gives me meaning? What thing or what idol makes me feel good? What thing, what idol do I think, I deserve that? I deserve that. I've had it tough. I've worked really hard. I des he doesn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve that. Why do they get that when I don't? I'm trusting in something, and it's not God in that situation. So thinking of sin, and this isn't a total definition of sin, but thinking of sin is a matter of trust. What am I trusting in? You know, Hosea can be a difficult book. And we have to think, what can I learn from it? Because we live on the other side of the cross. We live on the other side of Jesus Christ. And we have, we have a tendency. We can do this. We can make little of the things that God says are huge. You know, we love talking about the grace of God. I do too. We love talking about the mercy of God. We love saying God is love. We love that. And these words and images that we see in the book of Hosea seem so foreign to us. Because we think God's not like that to me. But what's happened there then is oftentimes we have not fully grasped the magnitude of his grace, the magnitude of his mercy. We belittle it by thinking it's so easy. We tolerate our adultery. And this book shows us how much it hurts God, how deeply it offends him. Because God hates it. He hates sin. He hates it because of what it does to his people. 
what it does to his creation, not just his people, what it does to his earth, what it does to the animal kingdom, to, the, to planets, because he created and he loves it all. And sin pollutes and kills and exterminates. And God hates it. I love to talk about that God is love. I love that idea that it's his core. It's not how he is, not what he's like. It's who he is. He's the embodiment of love. But when you love someone, there will be anger. Because when someone destroys their life, anger is what's involved oftentimes when you confront them for the good of that person. Love that comes from anger wants, uh, uh, anger that comes from love wants what's best in the person. It's not an anger that gets mad at, you know, like disobedience because I'm bigger and stronger than you. It's a love that gets mad at disobedience because it will destroy you and those around you. I can remember thinking about this with my kids. See, we can get angry when our children disobey us, but we have to be sure that it's not about us. When we're angry over our children disobeying us, we have to be sure it's not about us. It's not about me as the parent, as the dad, as the one who knows more than you do, as the one who's bigger than you and stronger than you, as the one who's paying the bills and you're living in my house and you eat my food and blah, 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 all the things, right? Okay, I have to make sure it's not about me. I have to make sure that when, when, when my kids were little when I, and I dealt with these things, I would tell them, listen, you disobeyed me, but here's the problem. This is a path that leads to great pain. It's not about me. It's about the pain that you are storing up for yourself if you continue on this path. And I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for you because I love you so much that I will forcibly keep you from doing that if I have to. See, God's not on some kind of a power trip here because his clear goal in all of this is restoration, repentance. He's saying over and over and over. I mean, in the middle, in the middle of the judgment being pronounced, he says, blow a warning. You guys, please. I want you back. I hate that it's come to this. Come back. I love you, and I always will love you. Come back. Um like about 20 million other people, I have binged on Hamilton this weekend, um, watching the story of Alexander Hamilton. And uh, I love history, and so I like watching it. It's presented in a little bit of a different way, but how it's, it's very, pr pretty accurate, pretty accurate, I'll say that. But Alexander Hamilton, at one weak point in his life, see how he couched these things, one weak point in his life? He cheated on his wife. Um, he committed adultery. And, uh, um, and, and um, it tore their marriage apart and uh, affected their children, their son especially. And um, she just basically says, I'm writing you out of my life. You're not, you're gone, you're gone. And he's like, I deserve it. And then after a period of time, they, they endured a tragedy. Their son was killed uh, tragically. And, and um, there's a point where she, she forgave him. And, and she took him back. Oh, boy, here we go, right? Bob the, can't stop. And, and in, the, in the play, she comes up and she's making these statements. And all you hear in the background is the cast quietly singing, forgiveness. Forgiveness. And, and my wife and I and, and, and my son and his wife, we were watching that. And I'm going, God, that's what you are to me. You forgive me. I'm such an adulterer. 
and you forgive me. I don't deserve it. I deserve everything that's written in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Hosea. I deserve it. And, and God's choir sings forgiveness. Forgiveness is yours. And um, it's a powerful thing when we begin to realize what God has done for us, how much he's done for us, how much he loves us, and how much we can hurt him. And he willingly allows us to do that because he loves us and he knows he's going to keep forgiving us and keep forgiving us. And I don't mean he encourages us to do it. I mean he knows, he knows it's going to happen and he loves us anyways. And that's a powerful thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes we need to get shook. Sometimes we need someone to grab our shoulders and slap our face even and just say, wake up. And Lord, this, this may be one of the, this may be a time for us, for someone who's listening, for me, to understand the magnitude, the gravity of all of this. We treat it so lightly. We take it for granted. We're flippant. And yet these are powerful, powerful things. We're, we're playing with dynamite here. Lord, help us to recognize that. Help us to recognize what your great love for us drove you to at the cross. And to understand that. We'll never totally understand it, but help us to get glimpses of the power and the magnitude of that. And Lord, we thank you that in that you have, because of the cross, given us salvation that is full and free. We do not have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to shame ourselves anymore. Our sin and our shame have been taken care of. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to say just before we go off, um, um, as, we, as we continue, you were looking at uh, phase three is starting and, and we're trying to open a little bit more. We're hoping that maybe next week we'll have coffee, which is basically God's heaven liquid. And... Um, we will we'll, we'll be taking steps, and, and we just appreciate it. We understand for people that have to stay home, we understand the, the concern you may have, and that's fine. Um, but uh, for, for others, if you're, you're welcome to come. Um, and we thank you for those also. I, just, I have to say it. For those who have given and been faithful in their giving, it's just, it's just been amazing to see how God has worked. So thanks for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.